Hello again, everybody, and welcome to a very special episode of Angles and Attitudes. As always, I'm Mark. He's John. John, how you doing? Hey, Mark. How's it going today? This is going to be a great day here in Chicago. You got it. Today, we are honored to be joined by two very special guests. First, uh, the author of the book, The 1969 Cubs, the Hall of Famer from Chatham, Ontario, Ferguson Jenkins. Ferguson, thanks very much for taking time. Enjoy. Hey, welcome, Ferguson. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks, y'all. The other handsome gentleman that you see, a longtime local sports scribe, historian, and uh, author of many uh, baseball books in his own right, George Castle. George, thanks for joining us as well. Welcome. Hey, George. There you go. Well, we can spin this uh, many different ways, but uh, Fergie, we're going to defer to you first, and I'm going to I'm going to have a quote from uh, one of your old teammates: "The Cubs are going to shine in '69." Uh, it started from opening day, correct? Yeah, in '69, Ernie Banks was uh, an individual that came up with quotes in the spring. He would, have, you know, because we roomed together, he, he he would come up with about half a dozen quotes, and then he'd figure out which one would be suitable for that particular year, and uh, <clears throat> that particular. Uh, Quote, Cubs will shine in 69. Yes. Well, can you imagine in uh, today's, um, with social media and everything else, there'd be t-shirts, there'd be hats, there'd be coffee mugs, right? Uh, ladies underwear, you name it. It probably would have had that na- had that slogan on there, correct? Oh, yeah. I think that because of the fact that uh, he, was, he was such a popular individual. Uh, oh. He got the tab of Mr. Cub. I'm not sure who put it on him. But uh, it just hung on, plus the fact that uh, he wanted to play every day. He was out there. And number 14, loved to play baseball, and especially in Wrigley Field. Yeah, that's that's something I think that, uh, John, I'm sure you can uh, attest to as well, is the love now. You question whether or not the love is there or if there's a paycheck when a guy's going out to take the field every day. Exactly. And Fergie says it best, Mark and George. I just remember running home from school and especially watching that 69 team and the way he would just, you know, he had keep that fingers on that bat. And I could always hear the voice of Jack Brickhouse when he had men on base. And I could hear Brickhouse to this say, come on, Ernie, you know, and it, there was a passion there. And uh, it, boy, I'll tell you, it starts with that summer. And um, for me, and uh, yes, it, the Banks was the epitome of that team without a doubt. He'll, who can ever forget him? John, do you know that uh, when Ernie would have a heroic moment in 1969, he was 38 years old. He was the yes. starting player in the National League that year. And uh, Rickhouse would say, you wonderful old man, you. And yeah. uh, he, was, he was really hot in that first half in that he was second to Ron Sano in RBIs in the National League going into the end of July. And well remembered fact is that when Warren Giles uh, had to, wanted to add Ernie to the All-Star team, he uh, lost Fergie a deserved All-Star berth because Fergie had 13 wins at the All-Star break and they just couldn't have every freaking Cub on the team. Yes. <laughs> Bernie had to yield his all-star birth to his roommate. That's crazy. Now, you remember wow. that? You figure you're going to D.C., you're going to meet Dixon, and all of a sudden, uh, Bernie takes your place. 
Yeah, you know, you know what? I, I can recall Ernie would have been the hero of that particular opening day in 1969. He had two home runs off Chris Short. Yes. And I gave up two home runs to Rick Mundy. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think it was Don Money. Yeah, Don Money. Yeah, the game up in the eighth, and I think uh, Willie Smith wanted Willie Smith. it in the tenth. Yep, and the the uh, the whee from Brickhouse is that ball cleared the right center field wall there, and and from there, uh, obviously from there it took off. But I guess the the question that 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 still rings now is: you guys are just as popular as beloved as. The, the group now with, with Brian and Rizzo, the team that won, um, and you're a team that went 92 and 70 and didn't win, but still captures the, you know, the hearts and, and minds of, of Cub fans to this day. You know, I think because of the fact that we got off such a great start and uh, we were beloved and they had picked us to win the, that particular division in 69. And I think it all started in the spring when really guys were really putting it all together, you know, with Kenny Holson, Bill Hanf, myself, and, and Nye on the pitching staff, and Reagan and Abernathy in the bullpen, and, and we had a, a set infield mm -hmm. with Ernie at first, Beckert, Kessinger, Sando, and Hunley. Yeah. And Leo was going to play these guys till they dropped. <laughs> well, Which, he played them a lot. To that end, I... Um... They showed that, uh, I, you know, as my wife wouldn't believe it, but I did a little research. They showed it. Uh, number nine, uh, the Rebel played 151 games out of 162. Uh, so, yeah, he rode that. That was a horse that he rode. Uh, Kessinger had 157. And uh, uh, Sweet Swing and Billy Williams was at 151. So, um not quite sure if there was a lot of managing going on other than knowing what names to put in the lineup every day to pace the card up there, right? Make sure, just tell the guys what time the game is. Uh, that's definitely what, uh, you know, we had a, a, a real small locker room and the starting lineup was posted on the inside of the door. And if your name wasn't on it or if it was on it and you wanted to change, you had to walk up to Leo's office and have an explanation <laughs> Most guys didn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> the only thing that changed was the starting pitcher. Yeah. You gotta, understand, you gotta understand, guys, that if you look at who was in that lineup, voted the greatest Cubs of all time at their position, that was the team. Four Hall of Famers. Bernie voted, Bernie in the Hall of Fame voted the greatest pitcher in Cubs history on the All Century team in 1999. Bernie, of course, is self explanatory. Sano, the greatest third baseman in Cubs history. Billy Williams, the greatest left fielder in Cubs history. And if Ernie wasn't voted the greatest shortstop in Cubs history because he spent the first half of his career shortstop, Don Kessinger, and I'm sure Bernie will agree, is a strong candidate to be the greatest shortstop in Cubs history if not, if not in his way. And John Becker, a multiple all-star second baseman. Randy Humley, uh, a leader on the field, a very popular pitcher. So these were literally like matinees, and this is why this team has such enduring popularity to this day. I mean, who in 1969, Murray would say, oh, I'm going to be in the Hall of Fame. Wow. Who would think that four guys in front of your eyes and Bernie's pitching is in the Hall of Fame? But then it shows you also 
Baseball's a 25-man game. Maybe a 40-man game if you include guys that you can call for the minors or guys you bring in by a trade for winter minor run. It's a 25-man game in order to and the Mets, New York Mets, unfortunately, had a better overall 25 than the Cubs had. No doubt about it. Question for you guys, Fergie and George, of course, you know, the question of over the years since this has happened, and we talk about the 69 team, that, you know, things were getting, they were tired. They were tired there at the end, you know, going with the starters. I remember the two backup infielders very well, Paul Popovich and Nate Oliver were in the infield. The pleasant surprise of that year, of course, I have to say, maybe somebody's going to argue with me here, it was Jimmy Hickman. He came out of nowhere and won so many games in those late innings. His, his power, uh, you know, was just phenomenal that summer. And, of course, you know, the platooning of Young and Spangler, and he had so many different uh, Jimmy Qualls. But, uh, I mean, I know that, you know, you can look back and question Leo now, but I guess the question's for Fergie. Fergie, did a lot of those things come up then when it was like, August and September, hey, you know, we're getting tired, you know, throw Popo in here or, you know, put Spangler in right, you know, let's relieve him. Uh, let's put in the young Oscar Gamble. What were your thoughts back then? Well, it, it, it could have been uh, an ideal thing for, for Leo to do, but as I said, he had a starting lineup and he stayed with it. You know, Hickman, I, I think uh, over the course of that, that year, 70-71 also, was a great clutch hitter. He just... He went to the plate with an idea. He was going to hit a certain pitch and he was going to drive it either. And he, he didn't hit a lot, a lot of balls to right field, but he was a, a straightaway uh, center field hitter and a, and a pull hitter. And he hit balls to left, left center. And he would drive the ball, especially in Wrigley field or even on the road, he would drive that ball for extra base hits. He was one of our best clutch hitters uh, in the lineup. Without a doubt. Center field. Leo used nine different center fielders. He used 11 different right fielders in 1967. Um, he knew him well from the Phillies organization, Buffalo Phillips. He heard his camp spring training, uh, and when he came back, and he already had a uh, kind of an emotional problem. He was uh, had stomach ulcers. Uh, stomach problems. He was kidding about things like pitches. Fergie knew, knew Adolfo really, really well. And when Tommy uh, was tired of Adolfo Phillips' uh, issues, they traded him to the Expos for Paul Popovich. And uh, that opened up a hole in center that the Cubs could not fill. And, and Fergie, that was a real issue because they were counting on Adolfo Phillips to. Uh, Plugging that uh, hole in center field and when he couldn't answer the bell, uh, problem I think you're right, uh, George. Uh, you know, Leo was uh, an individual that looked at lineups, and if he didn't uh, cater to the lineup, he changed it. And he right. was the only one that was capable of doing it. I mean, he didn't ask for advice. <laughs> he said, my, 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 my ideas of of what Leo was all about. If he wanted to change a lineup, that's what he did. I mean, he got Adolfo Phillips traded. He put in Don Young. He put in Qualls. Very seldom did he change the catcher. And we, at the time, we, I think we had Bill Heath, and I think we had Gene Oliver. 
Mm-hmm. And I think later on we we traded for Chris Canizero, if I'm not mistaken. That was a couple years later, Fergie, but Dan okay. But he just he he wanted Randy Huntley because Randy controlled a lot of what was going on on the field, especially with the starting staff. Sure. And that's what we wanted to do. We had Kenny Rudolph, that was a pretty good hitter, never sure. got a chance to play. Well, it, oh, and it, those about Randy that's that's very important. Uh, he just you know wore, wore himself down and caught double hitters. That is true, but he had a finger infection. He caught his speaking of Chris Panizero, he caught his uh, finger on Chris Panizero's shin guard in a game in San Diego in August, and Randy was hospitalized with an infection for the better part of a week and lost him for uh, the, the opening of the, the crucial homestand, starting with Kenny Oldsman's no-hitter, which was caught by Bill Heath and Gene Oliver on, on August 19th. Randy was finally released from the hospital, and on the way back home to Palatine, he had Betty, his wife, uh, parked the car outside Ripley Field. Randy went into the clubhouse to check on some things or whatever, and Leo sees him. He was feeling so upset. He figured Gene Oliver was at the end of his road. Ken Rudolph was ready. He needed Randy back in there. And Leo made a pitch to Randy back into the lineup before he was ready. Now, if you have that finger infection, I think that they treated the differently. You're probably on the disabled list. You got an infection throughout your entire body. Mm-hmm. And Randy felt uh, bound to go back in that lineup before he was ready. And uh, he was weak and Bernie can remember when uh, Randy lost weight after that, uh, had to hold up his pants with suspenders. So um, I recall um, that. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it, 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 that's what hurt Randy. Randy was third on the team in home runs at that point, behind Sano and Ernie, and uh, he had 16 home runs. And he um, he just did not recover the rest of that season, uh, and that really hurt the Cubs down the stretch, having a very weakened Randy Huntley. Well, you, you, some of the things you described there, George, and, and it, as the, as the game has evolved, you think about, you know, now there are maintenance days, right? A guy gets a day off the day before a day off. So he gets off on a Wednesday, you're off on a Thursday. And so you get two days off before you start a weekend series or in a pitcher, right? There's nobody that goes out there on short rest right now, right, Fergie? I mean, you get your days, you get your throwing in. There's no such thing as short rest for a pitcher right now. Uh, no, you're right. Uh, I think that uh, because the fact that they have a, a six-man staff uh, and some ball, some ball clubs, so now you're pitching once a week. And we had a four-man staff. I used to throw batting practice in between starts. Wow. And, and batting practice was just to, to throw eight to ten minutes to the extra men, mm-hmm. just for control. Uh, Joe Becker was an advocate of having players run, 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 and throw in between starts, not in the bullpen, but on the mound. Kenny Holson didn't like to do it. Bill Pappas didn't like to do it. There was a few guys that didn't like it. Bill Hannah, Frog, Froggy didn't mind it, and Rich Nine, myself. But there was something that Joe Beckard had been doing it with the Dodgers and the Cardinals, had great success with it, with certain pitchers, and he wanted to stay with it. And that's what uh, – Joe Becker did with, the, with the, that, that staff of the Cubs. How do you look at... Let me tell you guys that uh, 
That's what they did. And Frey's arrest between starts in a five-man rotation. I think those Leo Mazzoni and the pitchers do something with the ball each day, even if it was just lobbing the ball. Uh, I was told it was called touch and feel. He was right. Lobbing the ball, throwing curveballs, working on your control to the extra men. You're doing something with the ball every day, so you're keeping your arm limber without straining it. So even in modern times, that philosophy was used without spraining the pitchers. Uh, but the big problem again here was Leo overused. Uh, I know you like to uh, throw complete games, but there were some days, probably some starts, where he probably could have used a reliever in the ninth inning. Um, and uh, I think on three different occasions, Leo asked Ruggie to start on two days rest, and he finally agreed on the third time. He also started Dick Selma on short rest. The famous Billy Williams made doubleheader uh, uh, June 29, 1969. Uh, Selma had started the previous Thursday against the Pirates, went seven innings or something. And then he came on two days rest in June. Uh, later on, uh, he'll put uh, Selma in relief in both ends of a doubleheader against the Astros on a Sunday. And brings him back to start on a Tuesday against the Reds, and uh, he barely got into the second inning. So, uh, Leo did things that would get him fired as a manager today, but in those days, um, that happened a lot. Even Sandy Kopach sometimes was used in relief in between starts by Walter Alston. But you guys, I'm, I'm sure Fergie, as an athlete, and I mean total athlete, your your career with the Globe Trotters and, and that the evolution of a pitcher or actually going backwards right now you get a kid that 16 17 year olds in high school he doesn't swing the bat anymore he does he pitches you know doesn't even play defense and he throws four innings and he doesn't play the game run the bases all of those things how do you look at it now you go out there right you're going to throw nine now you're looking at a kid in the majors you go give me four or five I'll get three out of the middle, man. I'll get three out of the seventh, the eighth, and then Kimbrell comes into the ninth. Give us your thoughts on that. Well, you know, I think fundamentals are, are, are kind of set aside now because <laughs> of the fact that, uh, you know, I started uh, playing sandlot ball as a first baseman. So I wasn't afraid to go to the plate and hit against certain hitter uh, pitchers that were where I had to face. But, uh, you know, what's nice that you see now, there's – 13 guys on the pitching staff. Uh, I can recall when I made the ball club with the Phillies, I was the ninth pitcher in, in 1966. But when that when I got brought up, uh, they filled the 40-man roster in 65. So I got a chance to, to go out there and pitch. And, and Gene Mock wanted to see what my capabilities were. So I got a chance to pitch. But when I made the ball club in, in 66, I was the ninth pitcher on that staff. And now it's so easy now to make a staff because you got nine individuals in the bullpen and you got six starters. Uh, so they, the capabilities of going late into a game is just null and void now. They want you to pitch less than 100 pitches. If you can get to the fifth or sixth inning, your day is done because they've got capable individuals sure. in the bullpen. But what they call them holders now. Holder, 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 holder. holder. <laughs> yeah, he got a hold. Uh, it's all, it's all Mark, Mark, if I could get just a word in. 
Sure. I I still remember, and I hope Fergie remembers, and I know George will, of course. The greatest game I saw Ferguson Jenkins pitch is in the 1971 opener against Gibson. It was 43 degrees at Wrigley. It went into the 10th inning. Gibson, years later, was interviewed by Mike North. I think they had the pitch count. They didn't keep pitch counts then. was over 148 pitches. Williams hit a homer off Gibby in the 10th to win 2-1. to one. It was a phenomenal game between, of course, two of the greatest right-handers, Fergie and Gibby, Bob Gibson. Yeah, that was a lot of fun, you know. You know, oh, being the fact that you know our rivalry was the Cardinals, and I knew uh, nine out of ten times I was going to oppose Bob Gibson. <laughs> and the lineup started off with Brock Flood, McCarver, you know, uh, Shannon. Uh, I think they had Cepeda on that team. Atlanta Cepeda. But I just think that the 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 philosophy now of having pitching staffs. Is totally different. And George could probably reiterate that too. You don't see the number one pitcher pitch against the other number one pitcher. And the starting lineup is not going to change. And you just knew who you were going to face. So you better have your act together. Uh, knowing the individuals that's going to be in the lineup, you know how to pitch them. And it was up to you not to make mistakes. <laughs> Both knew that it would be a battle to the death. Uh, five and three, one no decision against Gibby. And um, Gibby showed that he wasn't going to get more than one or two runs to work against against Fergie. And I'm proud to say that uh, I pulled off the first radio interview of Fergie and Gibby together in 1996 when both were pitching coaches. And uh, Gibby at that time uh, kept his distance from opposing players because he didn't want anybody to get into his head. up so many different factors and uh you know you guys have been great with your time and we're going to try to keep to that 30 minute commitment but brings up a couple of items number one talk about the growth of the game how does somebody stay up to watch the cubs play the padres last night if they're nine years old okay it's 10 30 at night and you're in the fourth inning and you're changing pitchers number two uh obviously drive me crazy um analytics um, you didn't need analytics, right, Fergie? Like you said, the lineups were the same. You faced the same guys. You didn't have to go in your pocket and pull a card out and go, okay, uh, it's a left-handed hitter with one out and a man on second. Here's what I'm supposed to throw. That's got to right. drive you crazy. I see the pitchers now. They, they take their hat off. They have a <laughs> card in their hat. <laughs> and the number one thing they do is they, 
Yeah, they do it when the count is three and two. <laughs> now you have to know yourself what pitch you want to throw, three and two. You, you don't have to look at a card to tell you, well, he, he's a better hitter hitting a fastball three and two, or he's, he's he'll chase a slider if I throw it down on the way. But you got to throw a pitch that's close enough to the strike zone to intimidate him to make him swing. Sure. And it just it's totally different now. It's it's really unfortunate those things happen. And as you said, the games are late, uh, which is unfortunately a lot of younger fans can't see the game because it's after ten o'clock. And sure. and you're only three innings in. Road trips. You smuggle your radio under your phone because the games would begin at ten p.m. Yeah. And Well, that goes back to uh, Fergie's hockey. Um, the Blackhawks weren't on, right, John? We didn't get to the second period, 8.15, to get Lloyd Pettit on a Sunday night on a school exactly. night. Exactly, on a Wednesday and a Sunday night. Radio sure. under your pillow to listen to the <laughs> second period and the third period of the Blackhawks and hope you yeah, didn't a little transistor, right, yep. John? Yeah, for sure. I remember those days uh, vividly where we had to wait for Pettit to come on after a guy that George probably remembers, Pat Sheridan, would do the pregame show. Mark, Fergie, and George, I just want to say um, I'm a big advocate of the book. Uh, this is the book, of course, uh, uh, Ferguson and George uh, collaborated on. I, I've, I've read everything about 69. I read Tally's book. I read Miracle Collapse. I read DeRocher's Cubs. And I want to just say Fergie and George on this Cub book uh, that you guys have put together here. I, I, I've, I've read it three times and I'm in love. It's the best, best book of the 69 that I read of the four. Well, George has to take a lot of credit. Because yes. him being an individual that was very knowledgeable and he had, he had a lot of access to get to the, the Tribune or the Sun-Times uh, to have articles that he knew exactly what was going on that year. And plus the fact that as me as a player, I knew what guys were doing a lot of times in the clubhouse, prior to the clubhouse or after the game. So we collaborated pretty good. It ended up being a pretty good book. Testify that uh, Ron Santos Pro's Pizza was not oh, that the hardware box tasted better than the pizza. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I tell you, <laughs> In the game, the, the cardboard tastes better than the pizzas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Can I tell one more story about you? Got, you have, go right ahead. All right. Now, the famous Les Grobsky at age 17 organized a cancer benefit softball game at Dillon Stadium on, I think it was July 16th or 17th, 1969. It was after a daytime game against the Mets. How does help? Well, the front office provided uh, Les with two pretty good guests base. Can you imagine calling the front office you're 17 years old? Can you give me a couple of players? Uh, they just got out to do the greatest players here. <laughs> so it's the 16-inch melon ball softball game. And then that's three to pitch two innings. And Fergie, of course, is so limber, he can do anything in sports. So he pitches two innings. Does well. The crowd is entertained. What happens? Fergie's schedule started the next day against the Mets. <laughs> he gets racked up. Now, there's no publicity about that then. Can you imagine a major league pitcher doing that today? You and outcry on social media and the regular media. He picked 
pitching a softball game the night before he's supposed to pitch. But that's how close the players were to the public. That's how we lost something. When you have your pitcher come and pitch in a softball game and think nothing of it the night before he's pitching, we've lost a lot uh, by not, not having that be able to happen. Well, I, I, I can't even begin to underscore that 17 times this Sunday because that's what made, as we bring this to a close, and we thank you guys for your time again, is you guys were part of the community, part of the fabric that you could just walk down the street, but you still get the respect. I saw you, Fergie, um, my own story two years ago. My daughter got her uh, master's degree in, um, at uh, Northern. And you were walking around the communication center. That's probably uh, December of 2018. And I'm like, yeah, hey, there's, there's Fergie. And, and everybody's like, but, but to me, you were just part of it. Wasn't running and screaming and, hey, give me an autograph. That's just a guy from my childhood. That's all. And he's still part of it. And, and we welcome you and, and appreciate what you did. And um, we appreciate beyond belief what you did today. Um, I might be uncle of the year for at least a 20 minute period of time. So if, uh, John, you don't have anything else. Um, uh, just uh, two things. I want to mention something to George and one last thing for Fergie. Uh, George, I know you're coming out with the book about Dick Allen and the, uh, the 72 White Sox. We are looking so much forward because if it's anything like the book you and Fergie collaborate that I'm holding up so everyone can see, uh, really a hats off. Just phenomenal, George Castle. Phenomenal. 